So between 30 and 33 AD, we can actually get it down to these two dates, 30 or 33 AD. There was a man from the area around Jerusalem who claimed to be the Messiah, a new ruler for God's people, even the world's true Lord. Now, a claim like this was pretty complicated during this time in history because Caesar also claimed to be the world's true Lord. And he had his people all over Jerusalem making sure there was no competition. Nevertheless, Jesus did claim it, and he did and said other things that only kings would do and say. He had a group of followers, fishermen, tax collectors, and others, numbering about 120 people, probably a few more, but we're not sure how many more. And the Romans, being as sensitive as they were to political resistance, any kind of uprising, they crucified Jesus. Now, this wasn't the first time something like this happened in this area. In fact, it happened several times. A man would rise up calling himself the Messiah. He would gather a few followers. And finally, he'd be taken care of by the Romans. And usually they were pretty effective at taking care of things like that. The so-called Messiah was dead. And as always, the proof is in the pudding, right? If he's dead, he probably isn't a very good Messiah. Eventually, another guy would rise up in his place. But this time, something really unusual happened. This time, the movement kept growing, and they kept calling Jesus the Messiah. Even his brother started worshiping him, which if you have a brother or you have any siblings, you know how unlikely it is that you're going to call your brother or the Messiah, a perfect human being. You're not going to say that your sibling is worthy of worship. But this situation was different from all the others. His followers, growing in numbers at this point, they said that he had risen from the dead. And don't be mistaken, even they knew that people don't get, dead people don't get up and walk around again. It's not because they were an ancient people. This was very unusual. In the years that followed, this, this small group of people, they would be called Christians by outsiders because they followed the Christ... They went from this marginal, persecuted minority cult to become a dominant faith of the Western Empire. It really is astounding, whether you're a Christian or not. Sociologists marvel at this. What happened? This movement never should have gotten off the ground, and yet today there are 2.2 billion Christians in the world. What happened? Was it just the right time and place? Or is it true? (laughs) Could it continue to thrive? Could it thrive in the same way now? The book of Acts traces out Christianity's first 30 years, and it answers some of these questions that we're asking about how Christianity was able to thrive, what happened, what was unique about it. And in the passage Robert just read, Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47, we get a record of the church and its initial glory. This is a church doing what it was made to do, thriving in the way that it was made to thrive. 
It's not just that it was a honeymoon phase. What this history is telling us is that this is what the church is made to do. And when a church does this, it will thrive. Maybe in surprising ways, maybe in different ways at different times, but it will thrive. And before we dive into this, you should know something, especially if you're prone to doubt the Bible's reliability when it comes to historical things. You need to know that Luke, the author here, wasn't some naive spiritualist. In fact, in many ways, Luke's writings prove him to be a remarkable and trustworthy historian. historian. He can't be written off very easy. So what happened? Why is Christianity still here? How could it continue to thrive? What we see in these verses in Acts that we read today, and some that I'm going to bring together as we go through, is that Christianity grows because of the power of its message to change people. You see, the good news of this Messiah, Jesus, launches a new community. It's the, it's the hope of the Bible. It's at the center. The plan and purpose of a Trinitarian God since the beginning. This God who himself exists in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would raise up a people, a new community, who would be a light to the world's darkness. It started with Adam and Eve and their future children. From them, it moved to Noah and his family. And from them, it it moved to Abraham's family. It continued on through the Israelites. But it reached its climax with those who follow Jesus Christ. God creates communities to bear witness to him in the world. This is what God does. And immediately before our passage today, it's the first Christian sermon ever preached. We, we think it was about 45 minutes long. And that's why 45 minute long sermons are the best, most biblical sermons, right? In the sermon, we're told that Jesus, who was crucified, has, has risen from the dead. He is what he said he was. He is the world's true Lord. And he's going to make everything right again. The sermon ends with a call to repentance. It's chapter 2, verse 40. I hope you'll keep your Bible open to these verses as we go through. I'm I'm going to be referencing back. Chapter 2, verse 40. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Generation. This is what the good news of Jesus does. His lordship, it picks us up just when we're headed off a cliff of our own idolatry. And it puts us on a path of truth. A path of goodness, a path of love. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Jesus' lordship, receiving that, it makes us human again. 3,000 people received this first Christian sermon and they became a new community. Now, the logic of salvation, though, it usually works out, especially in the culture that many of us have been raised in and the, the church culture that we've been a part of, if you've been a part of one. The logic works out as this individualized event that saves us from the world and gives us eternal security in heaven. And that's only partly true. Because from here on out, the Bible speaks of to local communities of people who are united together by God 
and can't be separated out. Let me give you three images that the Bible uses to explain this, what I'm talking about. The Bible calls God's people a temple. You can look at this in a, you can, if you want to write it down. This is in Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, verses, verse 22. What's the job of a temple? A temple holds a God, right? That's where God dwells or an idol of the God. Well, the scriptures say that God builds the church, his new community, each person serving as the brick, a part of the temple, as a place for his spirit to dwell on earth. We can't do that by ourselves. That's something that we do as a new community, a church. We are the presence of God on earth. The second image is a body. Christ's body is in heaven. But his people together become his body on earth. It's something that's difficult to understand, but it's what actually happens. He makes us into a body of people. To separate us out in, as in, just as individuals is to cut off a piece of the body. This is the work of God in new creation. The third image is a household. And you can write, write down if you like. This is Ephesians 3.19. We become the household of God. Mothers, brothers, sisters to each other and to Christ himself, all with God as our Father. These images come, go, are throughout the New Testament. And here's what they communicate. Jesus, when he redeems people, he puts them in a new kind of relationship to each other. It's not just mystical. It's what actually happens. We're no longer complete as individuals. In fact, the problem all along was we were isolated in the world and couldn't be ourselves. The church gives us all an identity. This is what the Bible says. We together become the body of Christ. Think about that. Our identity is formed when we become the body of Christ together. And if the church is the body of Christ, then we can't live as disembodied Christians. The whole idea of worshiping God apart from the church, completely foreign to the Bible. We can't get away from the community without doing severe damage. We need the community to be ourselves. So to see the fullness of this passage that we're looking at, and even our place in the church. Why are we here? Do I relate to these people in any way? Do they care about me? We have to believe that Jesus has created a new reality. A reality that's sometimes difficult to see, but is indeed a new reality. As in marriage, we become husband and wife. In the church, we become part of one another. I belong to you. You belong to me. And sometimes we don't like that. Sometimes we really do. But not to accept each other is to cut off a limb. Or it's to disown a brother or sister. The Christianity forms a community. 
So part of the reason that Christianity was able to succeed, this is what Luke is telling us is what happened, is through God's power, of course, but in particular, God's power to yoke people together in this brand new way. People were yoked together in their mutual devotion to each other and to the Lord. Did you notice in the passage that Robert read? They devoted themselves together. All came upon every soul. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They're yoked together in their mutual devotion to each other and to the Lord. And just as this good news of Jesus brought them into being, created this new community, this new dynamic between one another, this same message is what's going to nurture their life together and continue to make them thrive. You see, the gospel does launch a new community. It makes us a different kind of people in the way that we relate to each other and belong to one another. But then it also sustains us and leads us as we move forward. Look at verse 46 in Acts chapter 2. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. This verse gives us essentially a rhythm, a schedule for early Christian life. They worshipped at the temple, which this would have included prayer and scripture. But they also had these meals together in homes, which, notice this, anytime you see the phrase, breaking bread in the New Testament, it's an allusion to the meal that Jesus, of Jesus' uh, sacrificial death. Anytime you see that. Breaking bread is a celebration of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. It's an awaiting of the day that will share in it with him in the kingdom of God. So the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection both created this community and it's what nurtured their daily life together. They're breaking bread in their homes with glad and generous hearts. I want to spend some time on a part of this passage that I think is often neglected. It's mentioned here just in passing. It's so easy to pass over. But it's part of the larger story. They met in homes, right? When Jesus did much of his teaching, he did it in houses. Do you remember when the friends wanted their their friend healed? The friend was a paralytic. He wasn't able to walk. They wanted their friend healed. And so Jesus is in this house and they go and start digging through the roof to get their friend down into the house. The house is so full. They can't just walk in. But this is a house. This was somebody's personal home. Can you imagine, would you let Jesus teach in your home? Evidently, there were automatic repairs that had to be done immediately after he left. And in another place, Jesus' mother and brothers come looking for him at a house where he's teaching. The house is so full that they can't get in. And so they're telling people, passing the word along, you know, in a crowd. And so the people close to him tell him, your mothers and brothers are looking for you. Jesus says in response, Everyone who does God's will is my mother and sister and brother. When Jesus sent out his disciples, he sent them to homes. And he said, if there's a person of peace there, which essentially what that means is, if they accept the message of the kingdom, then you should stay there. 
Already in Jesus' lifetime, there are people who are accepting the message of the kingdom, opening their homes to be a base for ministry. But you might remember that Jesus also told his disciples not to take anything with them. Do you remember that? Take no food, take no money, don't take anything. Why do you think he did that? Are the disciples going to be moochers? You know, we're leaving this afternoon to go visit our families. And we're not taking much with us. Why? Well, yeah, we might be moochers, but it's also because it's family. They're going to take care of us. We know they are. We wouldn't be going if they weren't. Here's the point. Jesus built the church around the home. A place where people could learn to become a family. People who weren't family became family in their devotion to Jesus. And they did that in a home. Selling what you have so other people can make it. Like it says they did in this passage today. That's the kind of thing that people do for family. Well, some of you might not want to do that for some of your family. But it's a typical family thing. We take care of each other. The gospel of Jesus creates and nurtures a family and it happens in the home. Listen, there are lots of things that change throughout culture and over time. But the importance of a home and family and forming forming our identity, that doesn't change. The home was central to that society. In our culture, people might try to deny that the home is central, but it's it's intuitive. The home and family are central ways that our identities are formed regardless of the culture we're in. Here's why I'm talking about this. A lot of you know our church does two things every week. Worship. This is what we're doing here. And we do small groups in homes. Now, as much as this is a strategic move so that we're not kept busy, we don't schedule much, a lot of other things. Even more than that, it's because homes are central to our identity. We're a family and we learn to be a family together with all the joys and frustrations that go along with it. When we're in each other's homes, when we're invading each other's personal space. When we're invading each other's freedom, the things that we think we have a right to and that are ours and we claim as our own, we become family when people start stepping over those boundaries and we let it happen. Our small groups aren't based on affinity. People who are like us or even friendship, people with whom we have this natural connection, they're based on geography because the God who tells us to love him and love our neighbor puts us in particular places, locations in the world where we have to learn to do just that. This isn't about becoming friends, though that is a wonderful thing. Christianity is about becoming a family. And that's sometimes much more difficult and at the same time much more rewarding. Now, I I know that many of you are very new to incarnation. Others of you are in really unique situations that make community a difficult thing. But 
you need, we need to ask ourselves, are we working to become part of the family wherever we live and wherever we exist? The primary way we do that in incarnation is through small groups. Groups that share in the life of Jesus together, just like those early disciples did. Groups that learn to be family together. And for all of us, I would ask you, when we look at the ministry of Jesus, when we look at early Christianity, the home was central to their life and to their ministry to the world. Do you know that your home outside of your body is the most important thing you have for the kingdom of God? It's the most important way that you serve God's kingdom, your home. And so there should be lots of time and thinking done about how your home is being used for the kingdom of God as an outpost to serve people with the message of Jesus. To be hospitable, to be caring, to welcome outsiders. Christianity thrived because this powerful news of Jesus' resurrection created and nurtured this brand new community, a new family. But there's another dimension. This was naturally mission, missional. You see, God's primary missionary method in his, is his people. He made us to be persons in community so that we could be the vehicle through which he would reveal his glory into the world. This is what I said at the beginning that God intended to do through Israel. And did you hear the passage that Lindsay read from Deuteronomy? The nations will ask, what nation has a God who gives them such wise commands? You see, we bear witness to the world in obeying God together. This is missional, naturally missional. Here's what, this is what happens in verses 46 through 47 to this community. They're worshiping together. They're breaking bread in their homes. They're praising God and having favor with all the people. And look at the result. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is a community witness. When Christianity is lived together in this way, it is persuasive. Who wouldn't want to be a part of a family that loves you? That holds you to a higher standard than you've ever been held and yet forgives you without reservation. Who wouldn't want to be a part of following a God who's that way, whose character is that way? Our doctrines that we want people to believe in. They're the most powerful when they're working themselves out in real lives and visibly in community. This is why Jesus says... They'll know you by your love for one another. How much more plain can it be? Just as doctrines, they can be abstractions, but in lives, they're stories that prove the reality. Rodney Stark is a sociologist who wrote a wonderful book called The Rise of Christianity. And he's explaining how this happened, the question that we're asking. In it, he says one of the greatest things Christianity did was to give people a sense of belonging, family. And in a summary statement of over 200 pages of talking about this, he says, what Christianity gave to its converts was nothing less than their humanity.
we have a gift. We have the gift of knowing the God who makes us family. Of knowing the God who sat down with sinners at a table and showed them hospitality. This is the gift we can give to the world. Many of you are so wonderful at meeting new people, at developing relationships where you can share Christ. And that can be fantastic. Some of you are terrible at it. You feel guilty and you probably shouldn't. Some of you have had some bad experiences with evangelism, so you've rejected it wholesale and that's wrong too. Evangelism isn't supposed to be an individual effort. Think of evangelism as a a cord of three strands. One cord is building relationships. One is sharing the gospel. But the other is introducing people to community. The community of Jesus is the persuasive force that this faith is real. None of these is sufficient on its own. We need relationships. We need the gospel, the spoken word. And we need community. Here's where I think Christians can get it wrong. We love our Bible studies so much that we don't make our communities accessible to people who don't know how to enter in on that. Our Bible studies are wonderful. But if we aren't using hospitality to serve people together, if other people can't enter in on our communities and see how wonderful the life of God is, then we're no longer a witnessing community. We're just a Bible study community. Wherever Christians gather is supposed to be a witness to the world. How are our communities doing? How's your small group doing? Are you so exclusive that people can't enter in? They can't get to know the Lord even a little bit. Our communities are supposed to be places of mission. Wherever Christians gather... Christianity grew because it constituted an intense community. And the primary means of its growth growth was through the efforts of Christian believers who invited friends, relatives, and neighbors to share in the good news and loved them until they did share in it. This wasn't a perfect community, even the one that we're looking at in this passage. If If we went on and kept reading about Acts, they had their issues too. We're a family, remember? And family life can be really tough. But if it functions in this way, if it's nurtured by the good news of Jesus, by resurrection life, breaking bread together and sharing in the life of Jesus, it can still remain a faithful, thriving community. Even if it's a little messed up. Let's pray.